This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast about the importance of democracy. Today, we are talking with one of the most important figures of the last decade, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases and key advisor to the US and the world on the COVID-19 global pandemic. I can distinctly remember where I was when I learned the world would be shutting down. My fellow Americans, Tonight, I want to speak with you about our nation's unprecedented response to the coronavirus outbreak that started in China and is now spreading throughout the world. Today, the World Health Organization officially announced that this is a global pandemic. But in that moment, that period in early March, when we were told by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and our state departments of health to stay in and stay safe, Vermonters are being asked to stay home as much as possible to keep everyone safe during this pandemic. Please leave only for essentials such as food and keep a safe distance of six feet between yourself and others when you do. This will help slow the spread of the... Our neighbors, our communities, our towns, our country, we. That we were uniting for the common good of beating the COVID virus. It wasn't long until cracks in our collective will began to show, and those cracks revealed some long-simmering tensions between expertise, technocratic politics, and democracy. As governing becomes more complex and as governments strive to be more efficient, data-driven, and less political, the turn to experts and technocrats to inform and make decisions has become a staple of contemporary democratic practice. Technical experts and issue expert czars manage day-to-day governing and crises. But what impact should these experts have on policymaking and how should they be accountable to the public? John Hibbing and Elizabeth Thies-Moore in their famous book, Stealth Democracy, Americans' Beliefs About How Government Should Work, argue that people care strongly about democratic processes. And when the public is upset, or skeptical about the process, their attitudes about government and democracy change. They point to attention people have about democracy and expertise. Citizens, on the one hand, don't want to be directly involved in democracy, but on the other, citizens are deeply skeptical about the motives of people who aren't elected or accountable. And in the case of the COVID pandemic, science and technocratic politics became the flashpoint for how we should think about the way we make decisions in a democracy. And it's in this tension that Dr. Fauci found himself in March of 2020. Today, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Dr. David Kirkpatrick and Jason Witted. Together, we asked Dr. Fauci about the tensions between expertise and democracy and how he saw those relate to the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome to Democracy Matters, Dr. Fauci. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. It's good to be with you. So, Dr. Fauci, thanks again for being here. And I, I would um, 
I'd love to start in March and April of 2020. Um, it, it really seemed like the first months of the pandemic, the nation really came together for what felt like the public good, that we as a as a nation could come in, we could stay in and stay safe as the, I think the popular term was, and that we could put aside partisanship for the sake of public health and safety. I think very similar to what happened in the post 9-11 era um, where the nation really came together for the public good. But at some point we didn't. And that moment really slipped away from the public. And it really felt like upon reflecting that this kind of opportunity lost for the public to come together and rally around something like public health. I, I would love to start here and just talk about this moment in particular. What were you seeing at this particular really pivotal point in our history? Well, I think you characterized it really quite correctly for the beginning of those first weeks to months leading up to the end of February, the beginning of March, the middle of March, there was a realization that we were dealing with a emerging problem that was becoming extremely serious, particularly with the initial major outbreaks in New York City, followed by greater spread throughout the country. And there was that kind of 9-11 feeling. I even go back further and say the World War II feeling, we're all fighting against a common enemy and then what happened is that divisiveness took over. And that is really sad, but true, because when you have the profound degree of divisiveness that we had in this country that was there all along, but it didn't impact the public health response. And when it spilled over into the public health response where statements were made, decisions were made, um, by different states and even from the top at the White House that were really uh, contrary to fundamental public health principles. And when that happens, then you have somewhat of a discombobulated response. Instead of having unity and realization that the common enemy is the virus, what we were finding is that we were fighting with each other. And the reason why I use the World War II uh, uh, example, because it would almost be, if you want to make it a full metaphor, of where we're in a world war with a common enemy that's a deadly enemy. And instead of all of our agencies pulling together, you have the army fighting with the Navy and the Navy fighting with the Air Force. You don't win a war that way. And I think that's one of the things that we were seeing. And unfortunately, that profound degree of divisiveness was very detrimental to a unified response. Hi, Dr. Fauci. Um, I'd like to ask you a question. So as tensions rose with some of the pandemic restrictions and economic pressures alongside of that, various fault lines uh, began to appear across the country. Some of the most significant divides revealed tensions between public health guidance and political voices with many pressing for faster opening or loosening of restrictions. And we saw that with different policies across different states. Um, how did you process navigating that reality as it began to emerge? Well, the way I, I had to navigate it as a physician, a scientist and a public health official was to stick with 
the science to stick with the evidence, the data and experience that we've had with other outbreaks, albeit not nearly as serious as this outbreak, to abide by, by the fundamental principles. Of course, there has to be a sensitivity uh, to the potential negative uh, collateral negative effects of restrictions. I mean, that's very, very clear. Uh, but you have to balance at the time that the restrictions were initiated, the original, as you might recall, the 15-day flattening the curve and then the 30-day extension of that, that was absolutely necessity uh, to do that, even though now when people go back, they have sort of selective amnesia as to what was going on back then. That was triggered because we were having cooler butcher uh, meatpacking trucks outside of hospitals in New York, particularly Elmhurst Hospital and other hospitals in New York, as well as in other cities, because there were so many people dying, they couldn't fit them in the wards, in, in the morgues. So, and then there was potential overflow where you had to triage patients because you didn't have enough beds. When something gets as desperate as that, you have to make a draconian move to stop it. Now that doesn't mean shutting down forever, nor does it mean shutting down completely. You have to keep evaluating on real time things like economic impact based against the balance of the risk benefit for the health. You've got to make sure you continue to evaluate the potential negative effects on children, keeping them out of school versus the positive effect of protecting them. And the way it's sometimes the narrative goes is that it was an all and none. The health people were saying do this and therefore it was destroying the economy and hurting the children. Well, as a matter of fact, the decisions about school closings were really made at a local level. Public health guidance was given, but the decision was at a local level. And what you had at the local level, given the fact that we have a system of government in our country of the individual states have a considerable amount of authority of doing what they want to do in the state as opposed to top down from the federal government. So you had some states were very loose, some states were moderate, and some states were very strict. So we did not have a uniform response. But in answer to your question, from the standpoint of the public health officials, we give public health advice. And then the local officials have to take into account a variety of other factors that lead to their decision about what they're going to shut down and how long they're going to shut it down. So as I see it, one of the pressure points in our democracy is the erosion of trust and expertise. But there's a clear tension between expertise that is perhaps technocratic-led and the kind of citizen and community-driven expertise that's foundational to democracy. And navigating that tension is quite difficult. A democracy should have citizens who are informed and able to solve problems in their own communities. How do you see the relationship between democracy and expertise? Well, you know, the, the relationship between democracy and expertise should not be major league friction. 
there. But what really, you know, the, 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 the monkey wrench in, in the process is the profound degree of misinformation and disinformation that's out there that's amplified by the social media, where the general public, you know, who's trying to get information is living in an arena of the dissemination of untruths, where, where untruths are normalized. I mean, people can say things that are outlandishly untrue, and there's so much of that that it gives a great deal of confusion to the public. So, you know, when you're talking about expertise and democracy and what the public trusts, it really gets very much complicated when you have so much misinformation and disinformation being disseminated. I think that's a that's a really great point that the sort of the confounding factor in all of this was um, and maybe the unexpected factor, or maybe we should have expected it right at this point in history um, is the level of misinformation com you know, compounded by social media. Um, and I, 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 I'm really, you know, I, I, to me, I, as a scholar of democracy, I'm particularly interested in, like David said, this tension between expertise and democracy and, you know, whether that's the, the way that you had framed it, Dr. Fauci, which is this tension between sort of local level democratic decision making and the guidance provided at a national level and sort of where that I think that that really thin line is between how um, uh, you know sort of governments who are local level you know municipalities want to make decisions based on how their own communities are experiencing things, but oftentimes it felt like or it can feel like the um, you know the 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 expert technical um, even if it's just guidance often supersedes or overrides this kind of lower level really community-led decision-making, um, uh, you know, I, I, it really does to me feel like there's some friction points here. Um, how should we really understand that line between, um, you know, national level guidance, but also the really sort of the necessity of local level municipalities, people to be involved in making decisions in their communities? Yeah, I, I want to clarify something, Kara, that is now, and, and I, it's often been mischaracterized about me, but that's okay. A lot of things have been mischaracterized. I'm used to it. <laughs> and that is that I do, and not only me, but my colleagues have a great deal of respect for the local level decision making, because, you know, pure mandating down and dictating down doesn't work. You have to have buy-in from the local community. So long as the local community is making a decision based on evidence and data and the truth, if they still make their local decision because they are representing the community, and I'm talking about local authorities as opposed to federal authorities, you have to respect that. Because, you know, democracy, you know, as you say, everything is local. Politics is local. Health is local. And democracy is also local, as you probably know, because you're studying democracy and probably know that better than I do. And, and the, as we mentioned just a few moments ago, all of that kind of gets confused when misinformation and disinformation goes out there. Like when you say we really want to get people vaccinated and you say you know the federal government makes a strong recommendation the cdc makes a strong recommendation 
I come in and back the CDC as a visible public figure. And then locally, somebody says, you know, vaccines have a chip in them. And Bill Gates and Tony Fauci put a chip in the vaccine. So vaccines kill people. And you know, people are saying that. Local public health officials are saying, don't get vaccinated because vaccinations are harmful. Now, that kind of messes up democracy at the local level, because if that were true and people made a decision locally not to get vaccinated, that would be, you know, a triumph for the for the democracy of 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 of, of the of the trenches of, of the local. But when that is being based on just egregious untruths, that complicates the issue. Point well taken. <laughs> And we'll ask, I think, again about the misinformation piece. But I, uh, I, I appreciate the clarification, and I really appreciate, and I think that the you know the point about misinformation really being that confounding factor to local level democracy, and really the game changer to local level democracy, where your neighbor is out there saying, "No, wait a minute, you know, neighbor, why are you getting this? Right, Tony Fauci has put a chip in my uh, in your vaccine. Now you're controlled by uh, the cell phone towers." Um, that that's fundamentally different and that hasn't happened in history to the same degree maybe other kinds of problem media has happened. Right. Well, you know, just one other point about that. Uh, and, and I've said this many times and it's true and I don't think there's a right answer to that. The foundation of our democracy, which you, again, I'm talking to people that study it. That's good. I know a little bit about it because <laughs> I've been living it for longer than you guys. Have, but you're studying it. You know, the whole federalist approach of states' rights and the fact that in the United States, we have a wonderful, beautiful, very large country with a tremendous amount of diversity, geographic diversity, cultural diversity, economic diversity. So the idea that a lot of power is put at the local level with the states really works very well in, in most cases. However, when you have something that is really quite um, precise in, and I call it the common enemy of the virus, you maybe need to make sure that everybody really understands very well what that common enemy is and what, what countermeasures are viable against that common enemy. And that's where I get back to the misinformation and disinformation. It throws a real monkey wrench into things when that happens. And that's one of the things that I think has been very detrimental because let's look at the facts. We are a rich country and with 1,125,000 deaths in this country, our deaths per capita are worse than virtually every other country in the world with maybe one exception, even low and middle income countries. So something is wrong there. Something has gone wrong. I'm not saying it's things we're talking about, but something has gone wrong. So you were invited to JMU's campus this Monday to speak with students and community members. Um, and you were invited by Jim Acosta, CNN's Jim Acosta. And one of the things um, that you emphasized and that really resonated with me in that conversation was the reality that science is always learning 
and that we know things now that we didn't know earlier, especially involving uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic. This is true for all of scientific knowledge and advancement. Um, so what do you think that we learned policy-wise that can help us in a future pandemic? Yeah, uh, well, you learned policy-wise what we learned scientifically because as, as the, the point I made out in my discussion with Jim was that science is a process that hopefully gets you to data, to evidence, and what ultimately is the truth about a given situation. So it is really process. You often hear about the scientific process. The discipline is science, but the process is the gaining of information. And the point that I was making is that the, the information was a moving target. In fact, it was much more profoundly moving in the first month or two than it is now, but it has moved all along from understanding the nature of the spread, the efficiency of the spread, the aerosol spread, the asymptomatic nature of the spread, the fact that we have multiple variants. So if you're gonna base policy on evidence and data that you get through the scientific process, by definition, policy will have to change as the information that guides the policy evolves. And that created, a, a, and is something that David mentioned a, a bit ago in one of his questions, this erosion of trust, you know, in authority, because authority is trying to make policy based on data and for the, for the normal, you know, intelligent man in, in the street or on the farm or wherever is saying, wait a minute, they keep changing their mind. What's going on there? We're, we're losing our trust in this without fully understanding is that the policy is trying to follow the evidence. And when the evidence changes, policy changes. Remember, I said that, I believe I did when I was down at your campus, that it isn't like math where two plus two equals four in January of 2020, and two plus two equals four on April 7th, 2023. It doesn't change. But the evidence regarding the biological phenomenon changes. And I want to make sure I don't, uh, I would be remiss to not mention, Dr. Fauci, what I appreciated about your visit to campus was not just parachuting in and going on stage and leaving, but our democracy fellows, our undergraduate students who work for the Madison Center got uh, a profound amount of time with you to ask questions and to learn. And, and so we are so grateful for the time that you invested in, in the JMU community. Um, I wanted to ask a question about specifically about young people. As, as you're well aware, it's been a very difficult few years for them. And I, I'm thinking especially about K through 12 students, but also for college students that the pandemic had a profound effect on young people, mental health challenges. And of course, at the K through 12 level, we're seeing delayed reading, math scores, et cetera. Do you think we open schools too slowly? And what can be learned from what we know now with regard to school closures? You know, David, I can't, I can't quantitate it and say too early, just right, or too late. I, I think that would be you know, Monday morning quarterbacking because you don't have a control group. You know, if you got a really good control group, you could say, aha, we have this group that did this and this group that did that and one did better than the other. They, they, there are some statements that are trying to compare one state with another, but there are so many confounding issues on any given state. 
the one thing we did learn for the future, that when you do have prolonged interruption of the school educational system at every level, including college, but maybe more so in the formative years of K through 12, when you're going to make a decision, you should at least know that there are negative consequences to that decision. And it isn't something, because I don't believe that there was ever a situation where schools were closed for this long a time. I mean, and it, and it really varies. And the reason I know it varied is that people were saying, well, the schools were, were closed for some for a year or more. Uh, well, you know, my daughter is a school teacher in New Orleans and they shut down for about two months and then opened up for the next three years. So um, it really is a wide difference uh, in one versus the other. And I think the point that you're making is a really good point. I hope we never go through this again. But if we do, we should keep in mind that there are collateral damages to decisions that were made on the basis of trying to save lives. And that is a tough one, David. You're looking at when when we shut, they, you know, there's a difference between shutting down or not and the duration of the shutting down. I mean, it was absolutely essential to do something rather dramatic during that period of time where our hospitals were being overrun. And as I said, you know, at, at your campus, not only were people with COVID not being able to get adequate care, but all the other people with heart attacks and ulcers and strokes, they weren't able to get into the hospital because there were no beds. That's a real public health catastrophe. As a JMU student and in talking to many other JMU students, um, I've heard two different narratives surrounding uh, attitudes about COVID-19. One being that there are many students who don't know of you, who haven't heard of you. Um, they knew that they were required to wear a mask and that they knew that COVID was the reason, but they said that they hadn't heard of you. They hadn't seen you on TV. Um, and the other narrative- That means they're not watching TV. <laughs> so, um, the other narrative that uh, for some students, their parents are against getting the COVID vaccine. And many believe some of the conspiracy theories surrounding the virus and the vaccine. How are we, how are we supposed to navigate a kind of apathy about public health while also discouraging people from believing in these conspiracy theories? You know, boy, th that really is, 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 a, is a tough one. And, and, you know, you wouldn't be asking the question if it wasn't really tough because you'd already know the answer. I don't really have a really great answer except to say that, you know, one of the ways to counter misinformation is to get as many people like yourself and your colleagues at your level to get involved in, I mean, I would trust that if you, you know, given the fact that you go to a really good institution and you have good training and you're smart enough to get in there, that you have the capability of searching out correct information. Uh, and, you know, to, to go to multiple sources, including sources that clearly have qualifications. I mean, the websites of the CDC and of the NIH, 
where you have scientific input from qualified scientists. I mean, doing it on TikTok and on on face you know, on Facebook is not really the best way to get good scientific information. And then be active in spreading. I mean, as I always said, the best way to counter the spread of misinformation is to start getting out there and getting a lot of people to be spreading correct information. And I've said, I said this, you know, during the, the uh, town hall with, with Jim, that it seems that the people that are spreading the incorrect, egregiously wrong and conspiratorial information seem to be very energetic. It's, it's maybe a quantitatively smaller group, but people like you who are probably spending your time studying and deciding what you want to do with your career, you kind of have a day job <laughs> and you don't have time to be out there countering all the nonsense that's out there. Um, but keep trying. I mean, we need to hear from people like yourselves to counter the real extraordinary distortion of information that you have out there right now. Dr. Fauci, we have one last question for you and then we'll let you be on your way. David? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so Dr. Fauci, we've organized our year at the Madison Center around the theme for the common good. We emphasize issues and values that people across the polit political spectrum can embrace. Can you leave us with some closing thoughts on how Americans can advance the common good in public health together as democratic citizens? Yeah, I think what we need to do, and I, I mentioned this at, during the town hall, is to think of the fact that one of the highest callings is to serve others. Uh, and, and that relates to, David, what you said about the common good. And I don't mean that you have to be a official public servant like I was for over half a century of working for the federal government or the state government you can contribute to society and in many respects directly or indirectly be a public servant in many many if not all of the things that you pursue i mean as a teacher as a physician as someone who goes out and does community service the gratification that you get from that is just extraordinary and again it isn't confined to people who are official public servants. You can serve the public in so many different ways in your life. And I can't think of anything that is more gratifying. So I would encourage the listeners to this podcast, particularly the students, to really consider making that part of what you do with your life. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Fauci. We're so honored to have had you and on campus uh, earlier this week. We appreciate your time. Thanks, David. It's good to be with you. And thanks, you all. Thank you, everybody. Good to be with you. Take care. Thank you for tuning in for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production were done by Leia Surabell, Democracy Fellow for Communications in the Madison Center for Civic Engagement. Your co-hosts for Democracy Matters are Dr. David Kirkpatrick, Executive Director of the Madison Center and Associate Professor of Religion and History, Dr. Kara Dillard, Interim Associate Director of the Madison Center and Associate Professor of Communication Studies, and Jason Widdett, Democracy Fellow. Research assistance was provided by Adric Bagdasarian and Leah Suravel, Democracy Fellows with the Madison Center. Randy Budnikis, JMU Director of Digital Marketing, provides syndication for the program. 
Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can connect and engage with us online at Jamie's Civic on Twitter and Instagram. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University at jmu.edu slash civic. We'll see you next time.